even at that age, at 10, I was shocked that our adult neighbors were rooting through our stuff. Most adults would understand that if there's all these belongings out, it's not just out for the trash. I would think it would be relatively clear that this was people's belongings being put out because they were evicted. It's all really sort of surprisingly vague. But I think that we block certain things out that are traumatic or that don't serve us anymore. You're listening to the Antenna Signals Podcast. I'm Marie Lovejoy. This is episode three of our series, Sync, Subsidence and Evictions in New Orleans. We're exploring the interconnectedness of the land and the systemic nature of the housing crisis. Previously, we spoke with an environmental scientist and several housing advocates. Now we're going to hear from two people most affected by evictions, tenants. First up is Heidi Bro. My name is Heidi. I am a single mom of two kids. Kaylee and Cora, they're 13 and 11. Three times during this pandemic, Heidi has come home to an eviction notice on her door. I grew up in Homa. I moved to Denham Springs in 2013, and then I moved to Baton Rouge in 2016 after the flood. I used to work at Albertsons as a cashier, and I was also working at Louisiana Department of Revenue when COVID hit. And before the pandemic, how are you doing? Were you doing okay with being able to make yeah, all your bills? Yeah, I was doing fine. I actually just started both of them. I had started Albertsons in like December, and then I started Department of Revenue in February, you know, new tax season. Were you going into the office at the Department of Revenue when the pandemic hit? Yes, ma'am. I was still going in the building. And what was that like? Scary. Because every week somebody else was catching COVID. Like, did you feel... Safe? No. Yeah. You don't know who has it. I can be walking around with it and nobody knows. You don't know. You don't know what you're going to go and catch and bring home. Because you're still interacting with different people. They say six feet, but you can't guarantee that you wipe down everything that somebody else touches. And you were continuing to work at Albertsons during this time as well, correct? Yes, in a grocery store, a public grocery store that is very busy, you didn't stop. So, of course, you're, you know, interacting with all these people. You don't know who has what. I really felt like being at Albertson was really a risk. My daughter, number one, has asthma. So when people come in there not worrying and not caring. Just customers not wearing masks. Coughing all over everything, touching, you know. What were your kids doing at this time? They were virtual because they shut down the schools in March. So they were virtual learning. I had to have a babysitter that was virtual with them. And then she caught COVID-19. Did she call you up on the phone? Yes, ma'am. And what did she say? She tested positive for COVID-19. And that she was no longer babysitting anymore. I know people say at that age, they're okay to stay home by themselves. They are. 
But what 13 and 11 year old kid is going to get on school if they don't have nobody telling them get on school, pay attention to school. Yeah. I mean, your typical kids, what they want to do, play on the phones. And I know as a kid, if I was in virtual school, my parents wasn't home. I wasn't going to do it. You can't expect them to sit at home by themselves and stay paying attention in school. And then you don't want to send kids to different people's houses. You know, everybody's being precautious right now. I have nobody here to watch them, nobody to keep them. I mean, it's just us. I had no choice but to quit my job. So you get the call from the babysitter and you hung up the phone with her. I was actually at work and I emailed my supervisor. And told him that I would not be able to be working anymore because I'm not having a babysitter. At the Louisiana Department of Revenue? Yes, ma'am. How quickly did you hear back from your supervisor? Immediately. And what did they say? They really didn't say anything. They just took my resignation. I take care of myself and my kids. And that's the reason I had to stop working at the end of June. Because my babysitter called COVID. Okay, so 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 now you have no job. You need to stay home with your kids. So what do you do? I applied for unemployment, but you know, unemployment didn't get too much because it's in the tune. I only got the extra three hundred. I reached out to my landlord. They just told me I need to find some way to get it. I reached out to the LA Help You Rent, whatever that they had going on. I printed it out, got everything I needed, and my landlord said that they will not accept that. Why not? I don't know. There's nothing. I don't know. I actually brought the paperwork to them that I needed this filled out. You know, this is to help me get my rent paid and caught up. And she looked at it and she told me, okay. Well, I went back to her and they will not fill it out because they will not give the banking information. So the money can be directly deposited into their account. They wouldn't do that. That that doesn't make any sense to me. Like it doesn't make sense to nobody I talked to. Everyone I talked to said the same thing. Even the Louisiana Help You, I called them and they said it didn't make sense to them either. Right. Like if they don't accept it, there's nothing that Louisiana Help You can do. If the landlord don't fill the paperwork out, there's nothing they can do about it. Did you ask your landlords why? That's the only thing they was telling me. And the only thing they continue to tell me is they will not fill out the information that they need. Louisiana help you need some kind of banking information for them to be able to directly put the money in their account. And I don't know why. I'm not sure why. My landlord will not give it to them. That's all they keep telling us. And how did the woman that you were talking to, how did she seem? Like she didn't care. I'm so sorry. This is all, it, it, you know, it's tough being a single mom with no job, no help, no, no kind of understanding. And not just single moms, I mean, everybody, people with, that had two jobs and lost their jobs and it depends on unemployment, how long it takes for unemployment to come through, you know? 
I've gotten three eviction notices. The first one was in October. They just rolled it up and put it in my doorknob. If it would have been windy that day, it would have blew off. If I would not have been home and wouldn't have gotten the eviction notice that was put on my door, I would not have known about the court date. I would not have shown up and I would have gotten evicted and they would have just came in and threw all my stuff outside. And at that point, how long had it been since you paid rent? I actually was paying them something. I just wasn't paying them the full amount. The next eviction notice, I was in December. I had actually tried to make a payment before they even filed the eviction and they wouldn't accept it. They wouldn't take it. Have you been able to catch up a little bit with your... There's no catching up. I mean, I'm trying as best as I can. I pay them every time I'm paid. But, I mean, you have all the late fees on top of what you already own. Because, like I tell them, they're not the only ones I'm behind. I'm trying to pay catch up on everybody. Electric company, my car note, insurance, landlord, cell phone bills. Everybody gets a little bit of my check every time I get paid. I'm going to try to take them as best I can. And if not, I have to move. I mean, there's no other choice I have. Like you said before, like there is no catching up because they've got all these late fees. Is it possible to just leave the place that you're at and try to start over somewhere else? It's possible, but it's going to be on my credit. So I don't know how that's going to work. I'm taking it one day at a time. I can't look into the next month. You know, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Where do you think you'll be in a year? Hopefully doing way better than I'm doing today. I would like to be in a place to call home. And I don't have to worry about walking to that door and finding eviction notice on my door. What would you say to somebody else who might be at risk of eviction? Call legal services and good luck. Because this is, it's a nightmare. It really is. It's a nightmare. Heidi, if there's one thing that you wished people knew that you don't think they know that you've learned out of this experience, what would that be? Landlords are really victims. Even though they have this CDC moratorium, whatever it's called, they are still evicting. Do the best you can. This whole series, we're talking about people who don't or can't pay their rent being removed from their homes. And for me, over and over, the same question keeps surfacing. What does it mean to live in a community? This is also something Justin Scalise has been thinking about a lot lately. These days, Justin works as an actor and vocal coach. 30 years ago, He and his family were evicted from their home in Metairie, just outside of New Orleans. He was 10 years old. Here's Justin. My name is Justin Scalise. I live in Austin, Texas, and I teach acting, voice, and presence work. I grew up in New Orleans, mostly in Metairie, which is a suburb of New Orleans. When you say mostly, did you move around a bunch? Well, not a bunch, but, oh, 
around 1989, 1990, I was about 10 years old. I was going to school close to where we lived. And I remember coming home and seeing so many of our belongings out on the sidewalk and neighbors rooting through our belongings, taking things away. We lived in just a fairly sort of typical suburb. And it was a house that we were renting. You know, there wasn't deep poverty where people might think, oh, well, here's something that could help me survive. So I'm going to take this to help my family. Both my parents, I think, were recently out of work. My mother was going between teaching jobs and sometimes clerical jobs. My dad was an architect and was also involved in real estate. Sometime in the 80s, there was a bottom falling out of the real estate market, and he lost his real estate business. We just couldn't afford paying the rent. I don't know, the landlord may have given us a little bit of a grace period or something, but at some point, obviously, he couldn't or wouldn't wait any longer. There was just a lot of upheaval. There were many times where we couldn't pay our utility bills and had our utilities shut off. And New Orleans summers are hot and uncomfortable. There was a fan, a ceiling fan, in my mother's and father's room. And I remember laying on the edge of their bed and getting up to spin the fan on hot summer days and then just laying back down again. And then when the fan stopped, getting up to spin it again, which, you know, sounds kind of funny, uh, certainly in retrospect. But it's really kind of terrible, isn't it? When you don't pay your water bill, they would lock your water meter. And my mother, she had to get a certain tool to cut and break the security lock on our water meter. And she did this a number of times, unfortunately. She would call the utility and just burst into tears and plead with them to... Uh, sorry, this is bringing up, a, you know, some emotional... Uh, because she, she had to protect her children and make sure that they were safe and healthy. You were really close to your mother. Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely was. She was my greatest source of unconditional love. She still had the strength and courage to deal with these problems and not just give up. We were also relying on food stamps and donations from the food bank. You know, it was just a very insecure time period in our lives. We were never actually living on the streets, but had we not had certain family connections that could take us in, that might have been a possibility. All the financial problems we had when I was younger, that created, at least for a time, anxieties in me. It created this thing that lasted well into my adulthood of just living in fear of not having enough money at any given time. Like, for instance, you go to the grocery store and you know you've got enough money in your bank account, more than enough, you're doing fine, but you put that card in and there's this trigger that it's going to come up empty. When that's literally happened to you as a kid, I mean, I, I don't know how many times that happened where we didn't end up having enough money for everything that, you know, we had to leave stuff behind. 
at the register, which is embarrassing as a kid. It's, I'm sure it's embarrassing as a result. I remember also my father just screaming many times over, we're going to be out on the streets, we're going to be out on the streets. Just that recurring fear being instilled by my dad. And I'm sure, you know, it, it came from a place of fear for him. But then to scream that over again and again with your children listening, to not realize that that's instilling a deep fear in them of insecurity. Evictions, there's all the business of it and the logistics of it, but there's also the financial insecurity and the insecurity of, of just that basic need of a house over your head that traumatizes certainly the children, I think the adults as well. From a child's point of view, when you don't understand a system, this complex and often convoluted system, I think we often immediately resort to blame because somebody, it feels like, is doing us wrong. And if we don't know better, it can feel very intentional. It's like, why don't they just let us stay in our house? I don't understand. Like, we're suffering. We haven't done anything. We haven't hurt anyone. Why don't they just let us stay in our house? I think for a kid, especially when you're in such formative stages, I mean, that can just really potentially do a number on your psyche, on your growth, mentally and emotionally. And then, of course, if it's not treated or healed in some way, it can have huge, long-lasting effects into one's relationships with others, personally and professionally. I remember, like, right after this time of the eviction, having panic attacks, like full-on panic attacks, that level of anxiety. I don't remember the specific instance of what triggered the panic attack, but I seem to remember it being relatively inconsequential. But it was important to me, obviously, enough at the time. And I remember my mother trying to calm me down. I was saying, Justin, you, you just calm down. It's going to be okay. It's okay. I was hyperventilating. I was stressing out. I kept talking and talking and talking about how everything was just not going to work out. And, and I mean, even those panic attacks, those are triggered by trauma, but they are re-traumatizing. So when you got evicted from the place in Jefferson Parish, then what did you do? There was a short period where both my parents were looking for work. My dad stayed with his family for a few weeks while he was looking for a job. My brother and mother and I actually moved to Austin for about a month and stayed with her parents. And we went to school for a month in Austin, started these new schools my mother was still at the time seeking job opportunities in New Orleans, but she recognized that she couldn't move back without some sort of a surety. And she was offered work by, I believe, the Orleans Parish School Board and was assured that the job would be there for her. We moved back and someone had given the job to someone else. You know, after a few more weeks, she was able to find work. And my father found a job, and we got an apartment in Jefferson Parish, which was not the greatest of neighborhoods, but it wasn't terribly dangerous. And the apartment that we moved into, also in Metairie, in the suburbs, just across the apartment road from us, there was a, an apartment that had a red light on all the time and was constantly being visited by police. 
And I asked my mom about it. And she said, Justin, you don't know what that is? She said, that's a prostitute. And I was like, oh, but that just, <laughs> you know. And I do remember hearing like a gunshot in the neighborhood at least once a week. At that age, I was old enough to know that it just wasn't the safest place to just be kind of roaming around. <laughs> but still, as a kid, hearing a gunshot every now and then in your neighborhood is, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not a, an easy thing to live with or grow up with. But it was just a different sort of environment that felt less safe. The next place that we lived was a house that we rented in Orleans Parish. Why did y'all move? Um, well, finances were a part of it. Uh, but also, I don't know if I've had a chance to tell you about <laughs> when we were involved in the juvenile court system. Um, did I ever tell you about that? No. Oh, Wow. Well, that's not something I talk about regularly, but I don't mind chatting about it a bit. Because of the financial problems and the problems at home, there was just a lot of emotional turmoil. I had very little focused discipline at home. Not that it wasn't attempted. My father was extreme in his discipline, and my mother, recognizing that, compensated by counteracting his discipline. I think... In many cases, she was much more fair, but the problem with that ultimately ends up being that there is a, a lack of discipline for the kids because there's a lack of an agreement between the parents. You know, my brother and I would get into a fight, and so my dad would say, okay, well, you're grounded for the weekend, and you can't go to your friend's birthday party now. And my mom, not thinking that was quite fair, she would take us to that birthday party. But as harsh as my father was he loves my brother and me and my mom certainly was just I mean she was a fountain of unconditional love but it was that period of time also that we were going through the juvenile court system there were a couple of years where my brother and I both missed a lot of school because you know my parents had to get to work in the mornings and so if my brother and I were running late to getting ourselves out of bed and, and off to school. There were some mornings where my parents would, at some point, after pushing us as hard as they could, they just had to get to work. And so on those mornings, my brother and I just didn't go to school. And that kind of added up enough to the point where people took notice. And we were both reported to the juvenile court system for truancy which got us tied up into the Jefferson Parish Juvenile Court System. And we didn't have money for representation, and it was, it was just such a mess. That on top of our financial troubles and our housing troubles and food insecurity and all this sorts of stuff, it was just, it was a nightmare. And to realize that we came at one point so close, there was serious discussion of them taking us away from our parents and putting us in juvenile detention centers, which I can't even imagine how my life would have turned out if that would have happened. Wow. Yeah. So, it's kind of a lot. That's kind of a nightmarish story in itself. Some of the social workers that they had involved, it's like they were trying to catch us. They were trying to take us away from our parents. 
questions they would ask. One of the social workers who came to visit our house periodically, one day she came by and she happened to see Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses on our bookshelf. And she said to us, not knowing what the, the book was or the, the author, she said, is that your Bible? <laughs> so I, I don't know. I guess it was an innocent question, but it just, I don't know, to, to even like <laughs> presume that we would, you know, that we were like, uh, you know, who, who knows? And it wasn't just that. There were more insidious acts that were really trying to catch us in saying something wrong to implicate our parents. It just felt like a big trap. And we were pulled through this for two to three years. Finally, we got this interim judge who looked at the case and said, you know, these people have had financial troubles and the the students had missed school. They're doing well now. Why are they still here? And she dismissed the case. Thank goodness. And this is how we got out of the system. But we didn't trust the system to not try to drag us back in. So we hightailed it to another parish. That's what I really think about the young kids and the effect that it has on them. We need to consider other people and realize that their best interests are our best interests. And the lasting emotional effects that this instance and the financial security that leads to this instance of eviction that it can have on people. And then, you know, their situation after the eviction, and in particular, children. Because that's certainly how I think of my experience, but also I just... I imagine all of the other children that this happens to and just how it changes their lives forever. And that's, that is profound. When I think about the eviction crisis in New Orleans that's happening right now, it destabilizes our society and our communities when we have uh, such a large amount of people that are displaced from their homes because we don't consider them. It's like they're in the shadows and it's not happening to us. We have our own busy lives to contend with. But what we don't realize is that when our community that we live in when it's destabilized and there are all of these people who don't have a roof over their heads or who have to find a new roof for their families, new home, new jobs, it leads to so many problems that we just don't see, but that actually do affect us. And we shouldn't care about it just because it does affect us, even in ways that we don't realize. Our, it affects our daily lives, you know, our busy lives that we're just trying to keep up with. We shouldn't care about it just because of that, but we should care about it at least because of that. Because what is the point of this supposed advanced American society if not that, if not that level of security and stability? What makes us different than all the other countries that we say that we're better than if we don't have that basic level of stability and security and care for people to lose their homes and be thrown into this chaos. Just put yourself in those shoes for a moment. Imagine that your home 
were just taken away from you today. That you didn't have a roof over your head for your family. And that maybe because of that, you lost your job and you couldn't provide for your family. And what do you do? Where do you go for help? I don't think people realize the effect in the long term. You know, we're raising a generation of deeply traumatized people. And that has an effect on our society and the way that it functions down the road. I mean, that's exactly it, is that we tend to treat an eviction as if it is a single act. Put the notice on the door, come by, put the stuff onto the street. All right, that's done. And it's like, it's not, it's not done. It's, it's not done forever. Most immediately is, where do you sleep that night? Yeah. I was very fortunate that because of family, we were never actually living on the streets. Ultimately, we were able to get a little bit more firmly grounded on their feet financially. They had a bit more stable income. We were then renting a house. And after several years, we were able to buy the house. But I still remember some times when we were living at that house where we couldn't pay the rent on time. But it was just a brighter time with more financial stability and, frankly, better schools. The first school I attended when we moved to Orleans Parish was Lusher. And my brother was going into high school and he went to Ben Franklin and those were just, in so many ways, better than the schools we attended in Jefferson Parish in Metairie. And specifically for me at Lusher, the administration was more empathetic, understanding, caring, more invested in the students. The discipline that I did receive, I actually received as an artist at a young age. Really, mostly at NOCA, New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. That's where I received that discipline. My teachers there, wonderful teachers, Ray Rizell, Janet Shea, Kathy Randalls, Henry Hoffman, and Elliot Keener. They were all excellent teachers. I mean, yes, it's an arts high school, but it's also a conservatory prep school. And that's not to sound pretentious or anything, but we worked. And we were taught the value of discipline and craft and held to high expectations. I didn't realize it at the time of how important that was, but it's affected every single artistic job and endeavor that I've had ever since. And so I'm very disciplined as an artist, but as a person, <laughs> as a person, I have some work to do. <laughs> you know, we worked every single day. We had, you know, voice classes, movement classes, acting classes every single day. And so there was a regular routine of working on our instruments, which is to say, you know, our bodies, our voices, our imaginations the actor's instruments. I remember one time we were doing a production of Cyrano de Bergerac, and because we got so caught up with the rehearsals, one of our teachers recognized that we weren't spending the time on our physical warm-ups that we should have been, and he showed us a recording of a performance that we gave, and you could see, you could see in our bodies the lack of physical specificity of focus of energy in the body. I mean, it looked sloppy. I remember that so clearly. That lesson was 
driven home. If you don't keep your instrument in tune and warmed up and strong and flexible, that it won't serve you in performance. Doing it on a regular basis, these warm-ups and these exercises, and just what that gives you in terms of discipline as a young artist. You talk about the things that you carry with you, that sense every time at the checkout line of maybe this won't go through, even though you know that it will. And then I also think about the things that your mother would say to calm you in the panic attacks and how that is also something that you carry with you. And not that I would wish trauma on anybody, and I'm so sorry that you went through all of that, but I see a man who teaches people how to breathe and to speak, and I think it's amazing that you found that path. Thanks. I mean, this work with the voice and breath and presence, all of that work is tied into someone's power and having agency with their power. The stress and tension and distractions and and trauma, how all these things take away our presence and our power through causing so much built-up tension and the lack of ability to breathe deeply and release that tension. So I'm sure the fact that I lived so many years very consciously aware that I had little to no power over my situation and how frustrating that was. I remember being in my preteens and early teens and just thinking I couldn't wait to grow up. I couldn't wait to be an adult, to have independence, just to have power over my own situation. I may not have known that some of that would have come through this breath and voice and presence work specifically and that that would have really helped to remedy that. I don't just work with actors. I like working with non-actors I want to use this work of strengthening voices and presence and power, reclaiming one's power. Working with people on their voice and breathing deeply and finding their natural strong voice that we're born with. You listen to a baby cry and watch them breathe and it's so uninhibited. Finding that again because we lose it. Because what a lot of people do inevitably when they're faced with stresses is that they build up armor. We do, we build up this armor to protect us from the world. And we don't even realize that we built it up necessarily. I did that. Obviously as an actor, it's my job to be vulnerable. And you can't just like turn that off necessarily all the time. If you're going to be present, you're going to be vulnerable, be in the moment. As an actor, you can't have that armor on. It just doesn't work or else you end up faking the performance. And so I had to work at stripping away that armor. But then if you don't have that armor and if you don't have healthy boundaries, then you can be in a precarious position. People mistake vulnerability for a weakness. So I think it's the vulnerability and trusting in that vulnerability because there's strength there. There's great, huge strength, but then also having those healthy boundaries. Our artists in this country have been hanging on by a thread for years, for decades. If you're living that life of hanging on by a thread because of financial insecurities, just what that, what that does to the human spirit, what that does to the psyche, it's such a burden to continue to bear day in and day out. And it wears on you. And it causes all kinds of deep 
deep problems just outside of the logistical problems. It's painful. It's truly painful. You know, we talk about physical abuse, but there is mental abuse, there is emotional abuse, and there's mental and emotional trauma. Those are the kinds of wounds, deep, deep wounds, searing, painful wounds that we don't see. And of course, because we don't see them in the society, we don't treat them, but they are there. And people are carrying them with them every single day. And it has an effect on all of us, on our entire society. We want to look away sometimes from those things, you know, because they're inconvenient or they're painful for us to look at. Or we say, oh, well, that's someone else's problem. But what we don't realize is that whether we like it or not, we live in a communal society and other people's problems affect us, you know, in ways that we don't even see or realize. That's why I believe in helping other people, because it lifts us all up. Yeah, I think that every single one of us on this planet is carrying something heavy, is carrying something weighted, and it's invisible. The empathy over what you went through that doesn't just directly correlate to people feeling for people who've been through evictions, but hopefully just more empathy and kindness for whatever your trauma is, your weighted situation. We can extend that empathy to each other. So I definitely believe in the power of story to do that. 100%. For New Orleans Shakespeare in the Park, I was hired by John Grimsley for my first professional role as Horatio in Hamlet. He just taught me so much about theater. And I think the most important lesson is the importance of theater as community ritual. For all of the showbiz, for all of the entertainment aspect of theater, that it is ultimately people coming together in the community and telling stories for each other and the importance of that. There's a certain lack of ego. It's not about the actor and how glamorous they are. It's a group of actors coming together to tell a story for their neighbors and stories that are important or that are cathartic. I feel like in that way it kind of reaches back to like the Greeks and they would tell these stories for their community. Then the community would walk home from the theater discussing these stories. Yeah. At the beginning of the pandemic, I started thinking about the concept of our theater. And like if theaters were going to survive, it's not just a matter of getting the community to buy tickets to come to the theater, but engaging the community on a level that they think of the theater as our theater, like this is my grocery store, this is my barber shop, and this is my theater. This is where I come to engage with my community and think more deeply about topics that maybe I haven't thought as deeply about before or that are important to me in a way to sort of delve into those in a community way. You know, I feel like we've drifted away from that in this country. I think it relates back to a sort of capitalistic view, you know, that's just applied to everything, frankly, across the board, you know, rather than looking at theater as an essential part of the community's health and lifeblood of what makes a community 
well, healthy, frankly, and brings people together. Which then, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to then wrap that around to evictions and the capitalistic view of evicting people from their homes as a financial decision or necessity on the landlord's part in some cases, because there's just bigger and bigger fish all down the line demanding theirs until it trickles all the way down to the person who can't pay their rent. What I think about so often on this subject of capitalism and how it is the basis for everything in this country and how it is self-centered, it is largely uncaring, this country is recognized as being the wealthiest country in the history of humanity. And yet we have children starving. We have people being kicked out of their homes. We have people who are literally dying by the thousands every year because they can't afford healthcare procedures. If you just take a step back and think about it, it's insane. It's literally insane. It all comes back to this sort of self-centeredness of capitalism because we do have so much money. We have enough money, you know, we have enough food to feed the entire world, literally. And yet, we don't. We have so much money, so many resources, it wouldn't even bankrupt the wealthiest people. You know, and I realize, you know, I'm talking about uh, socialism on, on a certain level, which is a dirty word to a lot of people, but arguably, so many of the great aspects of this country Social Security, our educational system, I mean, things that our taxes go to, these democratically socialist policies, makes America what it is. It's frustrating, it's galling to consider that we are such a wealthy country and yet we still allow all of this pain and loss and death. We allow death in this country, death that doesn't need to happen in terms of healthcare, in terms of people not being able to sustain themselves on the most basic levels. Until something affects me directly, you know, until I have a problem with it, I don't see it, it doesn't matter, so somebody else could be dying from something in the water, but until my water is toxic, I'm not going to pay taxes to get it fixed. That's it's just a sad way of having a community. You know, and whether you're talking about eviction and housing, or you're talking about healthcare, or so many of these other necessities of life and of having a healthy community we're not all putting in for that, then it's going to crack and fracture and it's going to fail. The people that these things are happening to, they're so caught up with it, they don't have the time or the energy or maybe feel the power to have the voice to tell this story. And it destroys people. And it helps to talk about these things. And I shouldn't keep some of these things under wraps. Sharing one story, the problems that you experienced, if it can help 
someone else on even just the smallest level. Realizing that if you are in the worst kind of situation, that there are people out there that care about you and that will try to help you. What would you tell yourself if you could talk to 10-year-old Justin standing on that curb today? Oh, man. It gets better. You know, this um, lack of security and stability won't be there always. I'm an optimist. I believe in hope. We have to have hope. (laughs) What other choice do we have but to hope and to work towards making them better? As hard of an uphill climb as that may be, we just, we have to. (laughs) Because otherwise, people will die and people will suffer. So, we have to. If you are having trouble paying your rent and possibly facing eviction, in New Orleans you can contact Jane Place Neighborhood Sustainability Initiative. They even have this really great webcomic called Help, I'm Being Evicted, a step-by-step guide for renters in New Orleans. It's highly readable and highly informative. You can find links to both of these in the liner notes for this episode. And if you can, you can help us to keep creating this kind of content by supporting Antenna's work at antenna.works backslash donate. This podcast is supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the Louisiana Division of the Arts, Arts Council New Orleans, the Rosemary Foundation, Morris Atchmi Architects, and most importantly, by individuals like you. You can subscribe to support this and all other Antenna programming at antenna.works backslash subscribe. Music in this episode is by Aaron Zem and Circus Marcus. Breathing sound effects were performed by Justin Scalise. Additional sound effects by Hampus Norin at freesound.org. Shay Shackelford served as editor. This piece was produced by Marie Lovejoy. Lastly, many thanks to Heidi Bro and Justin Scalise for speaking up and telling your stories. We'll be back soon with another episode of Sync, Subsidence and Evictions in New Orleans on the Antenna Signals podcast.